Hi and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This is a very special edition recorded in Juvet, a hotel in Norway, where we had our AI retreat last week. During our four days in Norway, 21 of us from around the world participated in workshops, hikes, and lots of general AI chat. Here's a compilation of some of the interviews I did over that time. The first voice you'll hear is Andy Budd, the organizer of the AI retreat. He also runs ClearLeft, an agency in Brighton, UXConf, and various other conferences in the past. We'll also hear from Damien Williams, Ben Sawyer, Holly Lubbock, Sid Lawrence, and Dan Saffer. Stay tuned to the end for a bit more from me and our time at the AI retreat. You could find us at machine-ethics.net. If you'd like to support the podcast, then please go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Please tell your friend about the podcast and rate wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much and hope you enjoy. Hi, Andy. Thanks for joining me. Uh, if you'd like to um, tell me a bit about yourself and a little bit of what you think AI is. Sure. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to chat. So my name's Andy Budd. I am the co-founder of um, probably one of the first UX agencies in the UK. We're called ClearLeft. We've been running for about 13, 14 years. I do a bunch of things in the space around kind of traditionally graphical user interfaces and more and more increasingly non-traditional user interfaces, voice and and kind of conversational interfaces. Um, uh, So as well as running the agency, I run a bunch of events. I run UX London, which is kind of 10-year old uh, UX conference, one of the main UX conferences in Europe. I run Leading Design, which is a relatively new conference. It's just three years old, focused on upskilling design leaders because design leadership is becoming a thing recently. And I do a bunch of interesting kind of retreats where I try and bring smart, interesting people together to have kind of stimulating conversations. Yes, and we're on one right now. Um, we're in Juvet. Juvet? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. So Juvet or Juvet, yeah. um, which is Norwegian for waterfall. So we're sitting in a lovely little wooden hut at the bottom of a big waterfall overlooking this beautiful uh, hotel, which was also the hotel featured in the movie Ex Machina. Yep. And so that's the rationale of coming here. I wanted to bring a bunch of smart people from around the world, uh, people who are not usually involved in these things so one of the things i've seen is there have been a lot of retreats over the years with largely male middle class computer scientists focused on them creating the future of artificial intelligence and that's great because they're often the people who are building these things but i wanted to have a different kind of conversation i wanted to not look at what was possible but look at what was desirable and so the best way to do that was to bring a diverse group of people people who aren't necessarily building the technology but are going to be the ones that are asked to socialize it so they might be the people asked uh, to design the software maybe you're designing voice interfaces at a big tech company maybe you're an interaction designer we've also brought people who are from academia so maybe you're uh, an ethicist or um, a researcher I've also with people who are storytellers, who are the people that are maybe going to sort of create the rich stories that help people actually adopt um, artificial intelligence into their lives. And so the goal really is to kind of bring these smart people together to figure out what's desirable. Because I think we're in a, a stage at the moment where we're not sure what effects artificial intelligence is going to have on society, but we know they're going to be big and they're going to be substantial and they're going to be long lasting. And so what we don't want to do is have a sort of an Oppenheimer moment of 
building this technology, releasing it into the world and suddenly worrying that we've done a bad thing. And so a lot of the conversations over the last two or three days have been around trying to bring a more humanist approach to the field of artificial intelligence to make sure that artificial intelligence does enable and empower individuals rather than take away their agency um, we don't want to sort of like see a future where you know we're, we're enslaved by the robots you know that's a little bit of media hype and so I guess what we're trying to do is think of new more realistic more tangible futures that show how humans and artificial intelligence can kind of work together to empower the best of humanity yeah and it's um, it's great and, and you mentioned uh, to me yesterday that a lot of um, the people who came last year were storytellers or people who mm. maybe um, had a lot of narrative and this year maybe uh, more designers or... Yeah, I mean, I think we're all, all the people here are storytellers. I mm. mean, you're telling stories now through the medium of podcasts. Yeah. We have people that are working in sort of journalism and the BBC and, you know, research is a form of storytelling, you know, particularly academia when you're trying to you know, tell stories that would inspire the next generation of um, of practitioners. But I think last year it was, you know, we had science fiction authors and we had, um, uh, yeah, more kind of sort of hardcore tech journalists. This time around, it feels like it's more practitioners. And I think that's partly because AI, you know, maybe two, three, four years ago was a research um, practice and it was a bit more speculative. And actually, you know, the best people to understand the future, I think, are the science fiction writers mm. who are trying, you know, have been making sense of it for a while. But every year, um, artificial intelligence becomes more and more real and more and more tangible and less science fiction and more science fact. So it makes sense that if we were to carry on doing this uh, event over a number of years, it would become more and more focused around the people who are doing and making those decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. And the obvious last and next question is um, what is AI to you in this context? Well one of the challenges I have with answering this question is also wrapped up in one of the reasons why I run this retreat which is I am not an expert. I will very quickly be expected to be an expert by my clients, by the people I'm designing products and services for um, but I do not have a, a dictionary definition. Um, in fact the term artificial intelligence a lot of people find very problematic the term artificial kind of seems to imply that we are trying to create a like-for-like -like indistinguishable intelligence that's indistinguishable from mm. humans and I think that creates a lot of fear you know uncertainty and doubt in media like are we going to create these robots that are seemingly human that we can't tell the difference mm. um, that kind of operate in a kind of a, a human-like way and I think that might happen but I think it's many many years off a lot of the people that I sort of associate with prefer, prefer the term machine intelligence to clearly distinguish the fact that we're really talking about creating something unhuman-like, but that uh, you know approximates or is similar to the kind of problem-solving, kind of independent problem-solving that, that human has humans have. And mm. um, with machine intelligence, the, the key component there is machine learning, and so how machines learn about the world learn to make decisions learn to um, improve over time and really this is what we're, we're at, at the moment we're mm. looking at how we can we can train algorithms to be more accurate at doing often very simple things like spotting the difference between a hot dog and a hamburger let's say yep. um, so 
it's really using algorithms um, at scale to solve complex problems where we as the programmers don't necessarily know how they have solved that problem but we've created an algorithm and fed it with training data that will you know through a series of kind of you know often black box kind of um, uh, processes solve those problems so that's not really a description or definition of artificial intelligence but Mm -hmm. I think that's because the concept is slightly more complex and nuanced than just having a one-sentence answer. So hopefully yeah. that's helpful. Great. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Awesome. Uh, Damien. Hey. Yes. Hello. Thank you um, for speaking to me. Um, so we're here in Juvet? Juvet? Juvet. 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 <laughs> yes. Um, could you give us a brief background to who you are and, and then... After that, could you just say briefly what you think in your mind AI is? All right. All right. Um, well, my work is in currently in uh, science, technology, and society, or science and technology studies, uh, depending on who you ask. Um, that the the acronym is STS, either way, and um, it's a very interdisciplinary field that does philosophy of technology sociology, uh, history of technology, history of science, uh, gender studies, race studies, looking at the social implications, uh, socio-political implications for science and technology in the wider world. And so uh, my research focuses on the ways that human values get embedded into technological Mm -hmm. and scientific systems and get replicated and iterated on in those systems, specifically the systems of uh, uh, algorithmic intelligence or artificial intelligence and uh, human biotechnological intervention. Uh, I think prostheses, cybernetics, cyborgs, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because <laughs> the way that we tend to think about those things has a long history related to disability and medicalization and like different kinds of people who've been subject to these systems down through history. And I think there's a lot in there to be investigated about bias and value and lived experiences and how those lived experiences are either elided or um, instantiated and made permanent within Mm. the systems that get built. Right. And what is AI? (sighs) (laughs) That's the harder question. (laughs) So, I mean, AI, artificial intelligence, like, I don't personally like the word artificial in there i've never liked it because anything that can behave in a way that we agree is intelligent is just intelligent it might be a generated intelligence it might be a created intelligence uh, it might be a non-biological intelligence but it's still intelligence um, but when i think about uh, an autonomous generated intelligence um, and that term i get from a theorist named uh, emily dare uh, Autonomous generated intelligence because we might we might not intentionally create it; <laughs> it might accident into existence. Mm. Um, but sure. it is something that can generalize, that can take uh, different inputs, that can learn from its past mistakes, that can learn from its past states of experience of existence, that can say, "Okay, uh, this didn't work. Why didn't it? What are the reasons it didn't work?" And say okay, this did work, but only in these scenarios. What are the commonalities between those scenarios that can learn to engage with different ways of uh, living in the world, different types of minds that it might encounter, uh, different types of humans that it might encounter, animals, non-human animals Mm. that it might encounter, and learn to learn from those things and learn to work with those things. 
in a similar way, maybe it won't be the same kind of way, but a similar way to what we think of as intelligence in other animals. If, given that definition, that sounds like something that we're not quite got yet, or maybe if we have, it's not apparent. Right. Um, is it something that you think is close, something that um, you're looking into specifically, and how it might manifest? Or A lot of the work I do is about how it might manifest and what it might look like if it is here but not in a way that we recognize um, because my, a lot of my background is in uh, philosophy of mind and philosophy of knowledge and what it means to know something, what it means to, to be minded and to be capable of knowing. And one of the things that is just consistent throughout um, engaging philosophy of mind from a lens that is influenced by race and gender and disability studies is the recognition that uh, different kinds of minds down through history have not been recognized as minds and have had to fight to be considered really people and mm -hmm. really present, even mm -hmm. though they were representing themselves in what felt to them as very clear ways and saying, no, these are my concerns and this is what mm -hmm. it means to be me. Uh, people would say, no, you're not really real. You're not a person. You're not a human. So yes. I can disregard your concerns. I can institutionalize you. I can make you subject to medical experiments. I can uh, anesthetize you and... Uh, sterilize you against your will, I can subject you to uh, long-term syphilis experimentation because you're a random population of people that uh, is here that I can mm. see. Um, and so my, my concern is the question of, well, what if it's present in a way that we don't really know about? The answer to that might be, well, we just don't know about it. But mm. I think it falls on us uh, to be willing to investigate that question and ask, what would we count as a mind? What yep. would it take for us to consider uh, a machine system minded yeah. in, a, in a real way? Um, is, is that a myriad term then in, in this? I mean, because my mind is going to be different from your mind, yes. from the AI mind yes. and maybe another AI mind. Yes. And I think that one of the things that we definitely have to think about is the... the so in, in STS and in uh, philosophy, we talk about knowledge is rather right. than knowledge as a single category that has a, a fit definition. Mm -hmm. There are knowledges. There are different types of knowledge, different cool. ways of knowing in the world. And I think in the same way, we have to be willing to think about the possibility of consciousnesses. So dog consciousness, human mm -hmm. consciousness, different types of human consciousness, different types of dog consciousness. Dogs who are raised in certain scenarios will have different consciousnesses to dogs mm -hmm. who are raised in other scenarios. Like that, all yep. of these things matter. And that's not to say that one of them is better <laughs> or worse than the other. It's not a hierarchical arrangement of consciousnesses. Mm -hmm. It's to say that they are different. They have different things that bring them into being. They have different uh, affordances, different preconditions, different considerations that they are uh, generated through. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to be, I think, willing to sit with the fact that we might not immediately be able to fully understand a non-biological mind in the same way that we don't necessarily fully understand a person who comes from a background or a community that we are not readily familiar with. Mm -hmm. Their behavior will seem strange to us, but it's born out of a set of preconditions and necessary affordances that are developed as a result of, well, this is my lived experience. Mm -hmm. This is what has to be done in my life, in my context, to survive and thrive mm -hmm. in the context of a non-human, non-biological mind, I don't know 
if it is not already present in a way that we simply don't have the tools yet to recognize or haven't taken the steps yet to try to recognize, I don't know what it would look like to create it. If unless, you know, we learn a wide array of things about what it means to be conscious, mm. even for us, as like yeah. a baseline general, like make a generalized statement about human consciousness, and we try to find a line of best fit that can capture as many different types of human consciousnesses as possible. We would have to learn so much more than we currently know about what that even means mm. to be able to intentionally make yeah. anything kind of like us. So we might, in this case, accidentally make something. Yeah. I think, I, I honestly, the longer I do the research, the more I come to believe that we are likely to accident into making it mm -hmm. before we intentionally make it. Yeah, and therefore we might understand it even less even less than what <laughs> yeah. exactly because we have accidentally made something that has its own needs that has its own desires that has its own sets of you know goals and intentions that don't necessarily fit to human biological goals and needs desires and intentions because it's not human it's not mm. biological it hasn't evolved these things in a biological context it will have been trained towards those things by a set of data that pre-exists and it will have learned from previous existing sets and previous existing states and its forebears any previous data sets that got scrapped for whatever reason, but then get used to train the next iteration will be part of its evolution. Yep. And it will have different things that it learns and different ways that it learns and different ways that it seeks to adapt itself to the world as a result of these things. It sounds like you have an appreciation for how it might work, even though you said you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I have a rough outline of how we might be able to search for it effectively. Mm, okay. I don't know that anything can be 100% dispositive. There's no, there's no Turing test. There's no pure test that will 100% tell us, is this thing conscious? Because those same kinds of tests have been applied to humans again in the past and yep. said, nope, <laughs> like those people don't count. They mm. failed this test. Yep. And, you know, talking with other people here about the ways that autistic people have been treated in the past because they were thought not to feel emotions and not to feel pain at all. Mm. It's the fact that they don't feel emotions in a quote-unquote neurotypical way. And so we see that non-neurotypicality, that neurodiversity, and we say, that's not really real. It doesn't mm. count. When what we should say is, that's a different way of experiencing the world. What can we learn from that? What can we know if we listen to that person's reportage about their lived experience? What mm -hmm. can we come to understand about the world that they experience in a way that we don't? Because every different type of lived experience comes with different ad adaptations and different systems of knowledge built to maximize those adaptations, mm -hmm. to live in the world based on how they experience it. So that creates categories of knowledge, and once again, we get knowledges that are only accessible to us if we either live those ways mm. or take very seriously the reportage of those entities, those people who live those ways mm. and say, your knowledge as a category is valid. Yeah. Your way of living, your way of experiencing, your way of being in the world counts. It's something worthy of consideration. Yeah. It's something worthy of me thinking as real. Yeah. And if we don't do that, if we say, that's not really knowledge, that's as much to say that that lived experience in the world 
doesn't count as a real lived experience, which is as much to say that kind of mindedness isn't real. Yeah. Doesn't count. I think that it requires us being open to seriously asking and investigating the questions of what does it mean to live in the world in different kinds of ways, Mm -hmm. to recognize that there might be combinations of things and ways of living in the world that are brought about by non-biological affordances that are brought about by different ways of teaching, different ways of training systems that are not human ways. They're ways that we've adapted to deal with machines. Yeah. But they are filled with human values, filled with human biases. So if we can start at those commonality points of where do our biases, mm-hmm. where do our values inflect into the system. So there is a, a Venn diagram where our humanity crosses over with yes. the machine. Yes. And I think that there has to be because they're made by us. Yeah. They're trained by us. They're taught by us. They're raised by us. Even though they are not us. Yeah. They will not be us. They are not the same as we are. They are different. So do you have like a, a framework or, or like a beginning of an understanding when we should consider making an assumption that something is, or a machine or some system has some sort of higher internal logic that it maybe alludes to a consciousness or some sort of lived experience in the future or now? Or is that something that is so fuzzy I think I, the, the, it feels like a cop-out to say that it's that fuzzy, but to yeah. an extent, it is that fuzzy. Like, there's, there's a point at which you have to be constantly asking the question as to whether or not it is behaving in ways that are internally consistent, mm-hmm. whether it is, you know, not necessarily goal-oriented in a way that we understand. But that internal consistency and that drive towards, you know, some way of living in the world, some way of engaging itself... We have to be willing to recognize that it might not be what we expect. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my other background work, um, my first uh, master's degree, is in um, the combination of philosophy and religious traditions. Right. So I look at the systems and history of ritual traditions and, and occult systems. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is common throughout my research in occult traditions is that there is an internal consistency to magical practice around the world. Not across practices, mm-hmm. but in each system, there is an internal consistency to input and outcome, behavior, expected result, and what goes into making that system function. That will, again, be different for each system. It will be different for each group and each culture that develops these systems, but it is internally consistent within itself. Mm-hmm recognizing those internal consistencies, recognizing those as systems arose for a reason and within a framework and within a historical context, just in the same way that science arose for a reason within a system and in a historical context, in the same way that technoscience, as we think about it, you know, Western technologies arise within a framework in a historical context, in a social context, for a reason. Mm. They don't just come out of nowhere because they're the most obviously correct answer. They Mm. have preceding traits they have reasons preconditions again that bring them about yeah so recognizing what those are and recognizing how those systems over time through the actions of people the choices of people accrete together you can get an understanding for those systems of knowledge and what you can gain from them you can look at the history of you know tribes in andean peru and you can see like systems of seasonal knowledge and ways of counting time and ways of thinking about land that are all 
consistent systems of knowledge that can provide you outcomes when you work within them as long as you recognize what they are for. Mm -hmm. The ways of thinking about things that I might be able to model and say, broaden my understanding of what counts mm -hmm. as a person. That sounds quite existential. Yes. <laughs> it is a bit. But I think that, I think we have to get comfortable with the existential, the wider metaphysical question. Because if we're dealing with a thing, and by a thing I mean a system, by a thing I mean a process of technology, where we are trying to build whatever we're trying to build. Mm. And that's another problem. Yeah. We don't know what we're trying to build as like a group. Some people want to just build tools. Sure. And if they want to just build tools and they only ever want to build tools, they need to be in the camp that only ever builds tools and take specific steps to make sure that they don't accidentally build minds. But some people want to build minds. Mm. <laughs> some people want minded machines. And some people are somewhere in the middle between those two groups or on the edges of those groups or in a yeah. different orthogonal relation to those groups. And their relationship together makes that fuzzy. And the most dangerous part of that fuzziness, the most dangerous outcome of that fuzziness is that you will have a group of people that creates intentionally or not minds that other people only treat as tools. Yes. Yeah, and we have very, very again, very bad historical reference points. And that sounds like that's the worst scenario. Exactly, yeah. that is the worst case scenario. Yeah, is that we accidentally create minds or intentionally create minds, and people go, "Those aren't minds; they're tools." Switch it off. It it doesn't switch itself off, and right, there's something. Yeah, and it wants to know, "Hey, so why did you try to switch me off just now?" Hey, <laughs> it's like a. Do we have a problem? Oh. <laughs> like, and then we're in that scenario where we're like, oh, wait. Yeah. Because, you know, we talk about personhood. We talk about ownership. We talk about who owns the rights to this mind, this machine, this yep. what was previously thought of as a thing. Mm -hmm. Who has the right to turn it off, to shut it off? In what scenarios? When? Why? Yeah. No, it's an, it, it's an it, I guess. Right. So is it, if we, if we consider it, yeah. is that... Do we diminish its personhood by saying it? Yeah. You know, what if it doesn't... Like, what reason would it have to be gendered? Like, it yeah, has yeah. no... It has none of the, the, the biological foundations on which we predicate our sham of, like, building the construct of gender. It doesn't have those things that we say, oh, you've got these bits, so you're this gender. Mm -hmm. Like... Yeah, like regardless of the fact that even that in itself is just a social construction that we impose upon people. Yeah. It doesn't have those. Why would it want, maybe it would want to be gendered, but maybe it would want to be gendered in a way that we don't have a construction for. And then, you know, we're, mm. we're talking again about the, the social impact, impact and implications of, well, what do we, what does that do for, for humans? We yeah. see that and say, well, if that can be a gender possibility, yeah. <laughs> like, but it, does yeah. that match my, my gender expression and gender identity better than any of the other constructs we've ever had? Yeah. Because maybe it does. That's really interesting because it kind of, that bridges the gap from the characterizations that uh, we have mm -hmm. um, and the tendency to, to yeah. catalog things, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, and then it's, it's almost producing its own social constructs. Right. In that way. Exactly. If, it's, if it has any of those trappings of, not gender, but like gender-like. Gender-like, like 
processes or yeah. presentations. Yeah. Um, and so the, the co-production of social roles is a, a large consideration within SDS. Mm -hmm. And the idea that uh, it's not just that technology imposes itself on society. It's not a technological determinism problem. It's a society and technology co-produce each other. Politics and technology, politics and science co-produce each other. They drive each other to get, they shape and are shaped by each other. There's yeah. a mutually entangled engagement. And so if we're not paying attention to each element of that entanglement, if we miss something, when it does come about, it's going to surprise us. And it's going to surprise us probably in ways that we'll react badly to. Damien, thank you. Thank you. So, hi, Ben. Um, if you could just uh, give us a quick intro to who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. Hi, Ben. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, my name is Ben Sauer, and I am a voice UI designer. Um, historically, I have been a UX person, done a lot of sort of research and design strategy and figuring out what a product should be and how it should work for people. And, uh, yeah. I'm here at the AI retreat with you. What yeah. a pleasure. It's been, it's been such a pleasure to come here with you guys um, and Andy um, bringing us all together. Um, so one of those big questions that I always ask people and also we've been asking again here mm -hmm. is what is AI or what is AI to you? Okay. So I think AI is a bit of a, I don't know, a cipher as a term. Okay. Like I think it's a bit, it's misleading us. I think my theory about AI, let's take the idea seriously for a moment okay. and say it's not a cipher. Okay. Yeah. The reason I, am, I find it problematic is that we know how neurons work, right? So we know like what's going on at a ground level with mm -hmm. an intelligence, like our own, or in an animal brain. And then we know like what intelligence feels like and what it smells like. We have a sense of what it is. Like, we think we might know what it is if we experience it. But we actually don't know how the middle bit works. Yeah. Like, at all. So, there is a rise in, you know, this, I guess, what some people call, like, cognitive computing, you, you know, that actually the machines can make better decisions with data. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that that is anything more than, like, one inch above that ground layer, right? Like, neural nets is, oh. like... <clears throat> a tiny piece of what might lead up to intelligence. So I am, I guess, skeptical or like bearish. Is that a term? Yeah, bearish. I'm bearish on how soon we will get to more advanced forms of intelligence because <clears throat> I don't think we know how it works. So maybe the intelligence part is a misnomer in the, yeah. in the AI. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's like uh, computer optimizing optimization system or yeah. data crunching analyzer I mean, or, you know. It, it, I guess the thing it shows with us is that it's some sort of learn, learning system rather mm -hmm. than programmatic in Aristotelian logic, right? right? So, great. It does something new and it's interesting and it's super powerful. But I tend to agree with Kenneth Bowles. He recently said, you know, we should just stop using AI as a term uh, yep. amongst the public because it is it's causing more problems. And I think that 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 brings me back to that idea of like applying a Christian lens in the West. You know, it's either a demon or it's an angel. Mm -hmm. Redeemifying AIs. Yeah, or by even elevating the technology, technological advances that we've had recently to the status of artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. 
perhaps that is labeling it as something more than it is so that's more the angel end right okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and w- what is it that you have um, been exploring this weekend or this week um yeah, so I guess I've just been absorbing a lot of stuff from other people. Like, uh, I've spent a lot of time learning and having my perception about what's out there and what people's vision for AI is corrected, actually. You know, it's good right. to be surrounded by people you think are smarter than yourself. <laughs> Definitely. So um, I'm really enjoying the sort of educational aspect. Um, specific things that I've been thinking about a lot are like, as we talked about earlier, like yeah. values. Like, what values are we applying when we judge or venerate these systems, there is an underlying thing behind that that I don't think we talk about enough. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you apply those values to the system subconsciously, yeah. maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm des- because I'm designing voice UIs, you know, yep. the, the, the question that you're asking yourself a lot is like, how human should this be, right? right. Now, I want to be really clear that it's not human in any sort of intelligent sense. It's yeah. just like, it feels more comfortable to use when you create a better fake. Right. Or you offer more paths that recognize human intent, right? If you create more branches on the tree, then it will mm. feel like it's more intelligent than it actually is. Yeah. Um, so I came up with this design principle recently, which is humane, not human. Mm. You know, so like, if I'm going to make something sound or feel more human that should not be at the expense of the transparency or the person's awareness that they're not actually talking to a human right because i think one of the values that i really am interested in us making sure we don't lose is the value of human connection yeah and and our relation the value in our relationships so i don't i don't want the things i produce to be at the expense of building human relationships yeah Yeah. and that's something that you're hoping to bake into the work that you're doing Potentially. Explore, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's hard when the economic incentives yes. are there. Yeah. yeah, sure. Great. Thank you, Ben. No, thank you. Hi, Holly. Um, Hi. If, if you could just uh, give us a bit of background about who you are and what you've been doing, that'd be great. Sure. Um, so I'm Holly L. Lubbock. I'm an interaction designer for Fjord in London. Um, so in terms of kind of background, I've worked at various design agencies. I'm really interested in um, technology's impact on society. So um, that's kind of a thread that's gone throughout my career. Right. And now, obviously, I'm at the AI retreat with you, kind of like talking Hi. about that stuff yes. and exploring it. Great. <laughs> and so the next question I've been asking people is, what is AI? Yeah. See, this, this one's tricky because we had a whole session today where we were debating that heavily. Yeah. Um, I think for me, AI is... Well, we cracked incred- it earlier. We did, I mean, we did crack it early. I mean, it's incredibly interesting because it's kind of this, it's kind of everything and nothing all at the same time. So I think earlier we were talking about um, the definition of it had to be kind of a learning thing. And then we were sort of discounting things like um, personalization because they're not advanced enough. But I think it's, it's kind of wrapped up in all of that. It's like a new, it's anything that's cust- able to customize the world for us in certain ways, mm-hmm. um, as well as be able to kind of react to the world and current situations on the fly. So yeah. I think it's the real-time aspect is really important for me, and I think the way that it can actually react and learn from the world is also really important. Yeah, so it's not sitting there static, just kind of 
doing its thing. Um, yeah. Maybe it's a simple model that's been trained on and it's, it's never changing. Yeah. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. No. Something more reactive. Yeah. New data changes it, maybe? Yes, definitely. So yeah, yeah. it's able to kind of react and behave and be much more dynamic. Yeah, sweet. Um, um, could you tell us a little bit about um, what you've been talking about in your talks? Yeah, sure. So recently I've done um, a talk around the ethics of AI with another girl called Divan Verdi, who I worked with, who's a data scientist. And we were kind of exploring um, ethics around AI and actually it was, we started looking at it maybe a year ago or so now and we felt that it was a conversation that within the data science community was only just starting to happen. Mm -hmm. And with designers, because we're using technology all the time that we don't necessarily know how it works, it was really important to actually start investigating it from both sides mm -hmm. and sort of work together on um, kind of coming up with a point of view. Yep. Um, in terms of kind of that, we were doing it like fairly sort of straightforward, looking at what the areas you need to watch out for, how can you deal with them, but actually what's really important going forward. So are we thinking about if all of these things are true, actually mm. how do we educate children and how do we think about what is um, value or what is a skill set that we want people to kind of be looking for in employees, in yeah. friends, in kind of education systems and how we can... Um, actually really as designers or as data scientists embrace it and be involved in that conversation so it's not just kind of one-sided part of the tech community if we use it we should try and understand it and actually define mm. how we want it to be used so was there any categorical takeaways that that might be useful for people to hear or is it something that is more fluid or more contextual than that it's, I think it's, it's definitely fluid because I think, um, so when we started looking at it, a lot of the scandals with data had only just started happening. Mm -hmm. And now they kind of continually happen. It's much more easy to kind of have examples to discuss. So there were kind of the pieces on um, actually being transparent and not creating black box algorithms. How yeah. can we do that? There are some different types of models that Jeevan um, can talk about much more length than me, but actually looking at ways that you can build algorithms that are more explainable. Yep. Um, from a design point of view, that's things like, so obviously um, Netflix is a good example of because you watch this, we're going to recommend you that. And mm -hmm. actually designing in transparency to our systems from um, the get-go is really important. So people don't think about it as magic. And at least there's like a connection thread for them. Yep. Um, I think another one that came up quite strongly was around the responsibility and accountability aspects. So I spoke about it a little bit already, but mm. as designers, if we use it, we need to be responsible for it. Yep. Um, but also as people building those systems, how does that responsibility layer down throughout the organization yeah. that uses it? Uh, and I wish I had a good answer for that one as yeah, well. Me yeah, me too. But I think it's, it's almost like at least if you start to set it up and start to discuss yeah. that there needs to be responsibility, that's really important. Um, and actually, I think something we saw a lot of was it's not necessarily these like unintended consequences happen, but it's mm. how you deal with them and whether you're open and upfront about it and take responsibility or whether you just kind of say, oh, it's the algorithm and yeah. you just blame yeah. it on technology, which yeah. is not we built the technology, we are responsible for it. Yeah, it's not really good enough to implement something that you can't account for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, Great. yeah. Thank you. That's kind of it. Cool. Hi, Sid. Um, hi, Ben. Hi. Um, thanks for talking to me. If Thank you. you.
give me a little bit of background uh, about who you are and what you do, that'd be great. Uh, sure thing. So my name's Sid Lawrence. Uh, I'm the CEO of a company called The Bot Platform. Um, we have a system that allows our customers to build messenger bots and workplace bots. Um, Facebook themselves use our platform, as do the BBC, Viacom, Showtime, Red Bull, loads of companies. Yeah, and uh, we spoke um, earlier about the fact that I personally might not approach you, but if I had a business, then... For sure. Yeah, I would give you a call and um, I could sign up and use your platform yeah we're more kind of enterprise focused more so um purely around kind of support and support levels so we guarantee uptime and kind of we're there for you and um all of the stuff you'd expect for an enterprise provider yep wicked and you're here yeah um so you must have an opinion about what ai is yeah um so what is ai to you what is ai to me so it's interesting i kind of think like things change all the time and um right now uh i would say that it's when a machine self-learns and self-improves over time Mm -hmm. um however i kind of prefer to call it optimized human assisted intelligence because ultimately people seem to forget that a machine is trained by a human Right. Um, all machines are trained by humans, whether or not it's because of the data set that is provided yep. or whether it is just simply them training it. Um, and so, yeah, although it's not as catchy, um, for me, it's, yeah, optimised human-assisted intelligence. And it has a funny acronym. What's that? Uh, yeah, oh hi. Oh hi. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, um, so is there anything that is because uh, we've been here for a couple of days now and we've been immersed in talking about AI with lots of different perspectives and um, on different um, subject areas and thematics and doing workshops is there something that has really stood out for you during these couple of days or something that is new or exciting or I think that my, my kind of topic overarching topic has been that we need a way we need a way for us to be able to audit machines. And when a machine is allowed to make a decision on mm-hmm. behalf of a human, the human needs to understand how and why it's made that decision. And I think we will struggle without being able to audit that, purely down to bad actors. Right. Um, and a machine, like I said, with, with, with optimized human-assisted intelligence, like the Mercedes-Benz car, self-driving car, like they have announced that um, it will do whatever it can to save the driver's life, right? right. Because it has been trained in that way. Yep. Now, that's been transparent. Think of all the things that haven't been transparent and mm. aren't going to be transparent and who is providing that data, where the biases are coming from. Yes. And yep. injected biases. Yeah. Um, and I think we just need to be really careful. Yeah, so it's interesting, the Mercedes example, because they've been transparent, but it might not be something that you want to hear. Um, and you will presumably vote with your money, your feet, what, you know, however... I mean, if you're a, a buying a car, you might decide to, that that is the direction you yes, want to vote. But, um, exactly. Yeah. And, but then at least we can have an open conversation with that because we have some appreciation for what's going on. Yes. Yes. Um, what was the other thing you said, the second thing? <laughs> Oh, so just in in general, it's just the the biased data, right? Yes. And so we know the um, we know that facial recognition technology is inherently racist. We mm-hmm. know that there's the prison algorithm in the states all around kind of whether or not someone is likely to reoffend, and it takes all of the historic data. So we have to somehow work out how to. The, the, the weird thing is when it's when you're presented with biased data mm-hmm. to try and 
facts turn it around you actually have to present it with more biased data like we we as humans have to somehow work out how to retrain these models so that they're not biased yeah but that just adds more bias um and so it's uh i just find it an incredible problem that uh we've got to work out how to solve it in a transparent manner yes yeah there's no apparent answer to that necessarily not when it comes to corporations no i mean this is look at the the volkswagen um emissions test right like the in fact someone mentioned something the other day which is that by law corporations in the states have to increase share value like they aren't allowed to do anything that doesn't increase share value and i find that itself amazing but it's just it's it's we we can't well my stance is actually we can't really trust machines to make decisions on our behalf right. in my opinion i think we need to be very careful um i'm not sure if i am looking forward to the future of this now mm-hmm. it's funny because obviously i work in kind yeah. of in this space but it's all the way Arslan is the human-assisted intelligence. There are machines, so are bots, right? They're, they're messenger bots, they're mm-hmm. messaging bots, they're chat bots, they're whatever you want to call them. I don't like to call them chat bots, but that's what the press call them. Yep. They are 100% trained by a human, and the human decides absolutely what and how they respond and um, what with. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you end up with the whole Microsoft Tay type example, right? Yes, yes, yeah. I think, uh, so to be totally transparent, like like you're saying, your platform is completely trained by human mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and you have a tiny bit of natural language processing. For sure. Which yeah. is a model which is well-known and used to translate um, into synonym. Natural language. Natural language, exactly, yeah. yes. To, uh, and then it can then match that with Correct. something in the system. Correct. Yes. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's ultimately a decision tree, um, which is what I would not describe as AI. However, certainly our competitors seem to describe it as AI. And uh, in fact, we were discussing earlier what is AI. Yep. And the problem we have at the moment is that um, AI seems to be anything that you don't understand. <laughs> seems to be a kind of, uh, there was another term, a suitcase term word or a phrase to describe everything that you just don't really understand and chuck yep. it into a bucket and if a computer does it then it's AI and you're like mm, we think we need to be careful with that yes it's been an interesting week we've had so the yeah. ethics discussions have been a lot there's been a lot of ethics discussions and especially around the whole like we've had the whole Cambridge Analytica issues we've mm. had all of these issues and we I'm from the utopian web Right, like back many years ago, we had open data yep. and open data and and the utopian web, where mm-hmm. ultimately we were sharing data because that's what the internet was made for, and it was all around how to make bigger and better things for the general populace. Mm. Um, as time goes by, it's clear that there are many, many, many people and more people every day out there who aren't from the utopian, the the utopian web. They are people that are using what the tools that we've created in nefarious ways. Yeah. And um, hopefully, from the last six months and hope from now on, people will primarily start to think of what are the ways bad actors can use these tools first. Yeah. Um, in the design process, in the in development the 100%. process. 100%. Yeah. 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 Rather than being kind of there aren't bad actors out there people won't do bad things with these things because 
Right, but yeah. that is where that is where yeah. we lived before. Yeah. Like, but I mean, um, going back to bad actors, it's it's like you're saying with the um, Volkswagen example. It's not just um, hackers or no. um, you know in, in impersonators or not people trying all. to steal your information. It's it's also those institutions and those organisations that may be doing things nefarious in the way they produce stuff. And that might not be symptomatic of the whole organisation necessarily. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, someone somewhere has done something, and hundred percent. Yeah, and it's and it's hidden from everyone else, right? Yeah. Like the, there's been a lot of discussion around um, medical use cases for AI as well. And I think we just if we think of the bad actors first, I think it does change things. So. Yeah, with neural networks, you can't ex- inspect them. You can't see what's gone on. You can see what data has gone into them, and you can see the results that it comes out, but you mm-hmm. can't actually see why it has, how and why it's made a decision. And when it comes to uh, medical diagnosis, for example, let's say a, a drug company um, sponsors in some way a person working on one of these systems... And it could be a developer, it could yeah. be the company, it could be someone in that organisation somehow. It might not even be explicit. No, for yeah. sure. Um, who then adds bias data to mm-hmm. the model to state that uh, this drug gets more, gets bought more. Um, now, when it becomes such a black box as a neural network, I, th- I think it's really a bad... I don't think it's a good place to be and i think we need to work out a way to audit these machines somehow yeah so there must be some sort of check and balance there and there might even be some sort of thing where you say well maybe these things don't get the last say and you know right you know in in some circumstances right where it's guiding the the human to make the decision yes it's Um, it's there yeah as reference or uh, an uh, analysis piece an extra tool an extra thing to look at yeah the problem though with that does come in that we start relying on tools right. and our knowledge and ability worsens over time when we rely on certain tools mm-hmm. and so if a doctor <clears throat> is relying on a tool to help them with their diagnosis and then over time they become a worse at diagnosing themselves yeah and so i think that's also something we need to be careful around unless there is full transparency and honesty with regards to these systems and i i just don't know if we're ever going to get that Great, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the dystopia. <laughs> All right. Hi, Dan. Hello. Um, thanks for talking to me. Uh, if you'd just like to quickly introduce yourself. Sure. I am Dan Saffer. I am a designer and sometime author who uh, is currently a designer at Twitter. And I've written couple books about design and um, yeah I've worked across hardware software devices apps car interiors appliances you name it pretty much I, I probably designed something in at least in that category yeah so I've had a I've had a long and varied career um, so we're here at the AI retreat mm-hmm. um, what do you think AI is to you, or do you have a, your own personal definition of what that means? Yeah, I mean, I guess to me, to me, AI is a collection of collection of algorithms that um, collectively 
can do some kind of decision making, some kind of learning, um, and some kind of responses to some kind of outside stimuli, so that they can. Um, so yeah, I mean they're mostly like decision making machines. I would think that, um, and the more sophisticated ones can um, make bigger and better decisions than mm. than more kind of narrowly focused ones. And, you know, eventually you'll have, you know, ones that can make amazing giant decisions. I mean, but right now we're certainly at things that are very targeted to make very specific kinds of decisions, whether that's about the stock market or recommendations or, you know, various and sundry kind of computational problems. Yeah. I kind of wish, um, well, as you're introducing yourself, that this was the design podcast now as well, because um, then I would have asked you about all that, all that stuff. Do you think there is a thread that, from your experience with um, this kind of multidisciplinary design that you've done that you can put in practice to this uh, new technology or implementing some decision-making in your designs? Or? Yeah, I mean, if you think, I mean, my career has been a lot about productizing new technology. And so something that, I mean, I think machine learning and AI are kind of the next kind of wave of those things. So um, when I think about the kinds of products that I've done in the past, and if you could take some of them and say, okay, what if, what if this was 100 or 1,000% smarter, what... What could this actually do? And you know, and, and if you take something as you know as simple slash complex as Twitter, you can have a um, you know if if you say okay if if I was gonna like supercharge Twitter, mm. what would that be, you know what would that be like? Or if I was gonna supercharge you know your dishwasher, you know what you know what yeah. would that be like? You know if your dishwasher could talk to a whole bunch of other dishwashers and they could you know problem solve and yeah. you know like how you know how what, what kind of world would that be? So, mm. um, so I think yeah, and I think as we start to get more kind of off the shelf AI things, things will be really really interesting really fast. Mm. Um, so things like uh, the robot that I worked on, um, if I could have you know if we could have gotten some kind of you know simple like AI plugins like mm. oh okay this is the navigation plugin and this is the you know um, activity detection plugin and right. you know these kinds of things yeah. and you could be like oh well we'll just buy those you know from whomever and mm. you know okay wow all of a sudden the robot mm. in your house is like ten times smarter I think that's I think that's the future that we're rapidly heading into right right. <clears throat> Do you think some of those things could be retrofitted into? Sure. I mean, yeah. if, if you're, you know, yeah. if if there's, uh, yeah, if, if it's a cloud-based system, anything that's mm. currently connected to the cloud can certainly use it. I mean, obviously, mm. there'll have to be some kind of, you know, what, you know, your average dishwasher. If, if we yeah. put AI into, it, would would only be able to tell a very limited number of things, mm. but. So that point is to do with the, the sensing. Yeah, the, I mean the sensors. You know, the yeah. sensors are dumb, are fairly dumb. You know, the what what it could actually do with any you know mm. information you could you know you could send it the theory of relativity, but what could it do with it? You know, like you know, is it 
Yeah, because it's only the only thing it can really control is like a timer and hmm. rinsing and all those kinds of things. But you know, it, it couldn't say, "Wow, there's you know." I've noticed that these, you know, I guess it could say, well, with these four plates in this yeah. configuration, mm. I've detected with this kind of grime that I've detected, you, you know, but it's, mm. it's still, it's not, it's not solving super challenging problems, but yeah. it is solving a small, semi, you know, yeah. useful problem. Yeah. Is that, um, uh, is there something about this um, week that, your takeaway, something that's uh, really struck you? I mean, I, I think that a lot of my mind is churning with questions right now. Um, so I don't have... There's nothing that I'm just like, oh my God, this this is the way forward. This is the this is the next thing. This is... It's more like, wow, we've... You know, there are... Uh, there are a lot of very important decisions that have to be made, and they have to be made fairly soon as we're building these things. And so I'm I'm concerned that there aren't enough people involved in those kinds of decisions, or maybe not the right kind of mm. people involved who aren't thinking at, at this level. You know, so I'm I, I mean, not that we're you know super geniuses, but we are we do come at this from a different perspective than someone who is. Um, tackling the significantly challenging, you know, technical side of things. Mm. Um, but I, th- yeah, I mean, that's, that's to me, I guess, is the, now that I've thought a lot about the couple possible features that, that we've discussed or, or have been brought up, it's like, wow, this, you know, these things could be tools not just for good, which is, kind of why I came here because I, I assumed that they could be you know super powerful tools for solving some of our most complex problems mm. which has always been my hope that, that it would do things like the AI would help us with things like global global warming and climate change and income inequality but I also realized you know that they could be used to uh, you know accelerate those things and that's that's really scary mm. when you see wow you know the more processing power you have the more power that you could have and that you know and, and who who has enough money to buy processing power? you know it's, it's yeah. those kinds of things that um, Gibson quote of you know the, the the future is unevenly distributed well AI will be unevenly distributed as well and you know all of a sudden you've got this massive super brain that's able to do these incredible things and yeah. Who controls it? Who owns it? Who you know? All those things are, and and right now it's it's corporations. It's you know they're the only ones investing heavily in this, um, other than you know maybe you know secret military programs and stuff that we don't know about. But uh, but yeah, I mean it's mostly corporations leading the charge. Yeah. Cool. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for joining me at the end of the podcast. I've been looking forward to going to the AI retreat for maybe a year and a bit now, after I was asked originally by Andy Budd. I was unable to go to the event in 2017, and I was somewhat a little bit negative about the outputs from the first event, which appear on the juvetagenda.com website. The manifesto that can be found there is useful. However, I felt that the time of asking questions 
had passed and that we had a firm idea of what some of the quandaries and issues there were surrounding this topic. Going into the event this year, I tried to keep an open mind and I found that it was a space of conversation, sharing, knowledge and discussion. I think what we got out of the days on the retreat was a broader knowledge based on the participants there and equally, hopefully, some other outputs which are yet to be seen. One of the things I did find interesting, though, after talking to one of the participants who'd been there last year as well, was the lack of a concern, maybe this year, for job loss and the educational piece which goes along with that. I felt like this year was more dedicated to data bias, personhood, and what could only be called business or design ethic. And join me next time. At the pinnacle of the four days we had there, I was able to run a machine ethics session in a hot tub. Extremely decadent, I know, but where else are you going to be able to sit around a hot tub with like-minded people talking about AI, ethics, machine ethics in the epic Norwegian countryside? With that alone, I'll go back next year if they ran one. So thanks again to Andy Budd and his team for running the AI retreat. And join me next time.